Welcome to Fire Headlines, where we discuss the hottest fire news to hit within the last two weeks. I'm your host, Inanna Hanke, and I'm joined today by the panel, Chief Bob Horton and Chief Jeff Buchanan. Our topic today is firefighter safety as it relates to hazardous materials, specifically train derailments. The Transportation Department has unveiled a new proposal that would require railroads to notify first responders of the cargo a derailed train is carrying. When a train incident releases hazardous material, the railroad operating that train would need to immediately forward details of what the train is carrying to first responders within a 10-mile radius of the area. Supposedly, this would prepare first responders to help them understand what they are dealing with before they arrive at the accident and then determine whether a more specialized response may be needed. Large railroads have an app called Ask Rail so that firefighters can look up what the cargo of each train is. But smaller railroads currently don't have that in place. So the new rule would apply to nearly 600 railroads across the country. Bob, what do you think is the most effective way for this information to reach first responders in a timely manner? Yeah, thanks, Anana, for that question. I'm actually embarrassed to admit that I didn't know this wasn't already a thing. I sort of just assumed that this type of notification is part of our process. Now, the catalyst for this discussion is the train derailment in East Palestine and all of the uh, what we saw from the national headlines that uh, what we call in public policy, this is a focusing event, which starts to drive things like this to move up the policy agenda. So we're starting to see this, you know, this initiative to make sure first responders have the information they need. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. Intuitively, that makes perfect sense to me. And like I said, on the onset, surprises me we're not already doing that. But it sounds it sounds like we are. Um, I just was never aware of it. And I had the reliance on hazardous materials response techs that were specially trained in this type of stuff. So information generally was would have been lost on me, albeit you know, we would respond and we were trained to essentially cordon off areas to wait for hazardous material technicians to provide further guidance on how we're supposed to handle these things. I really, for the purpose of this article, want to zoom in on one particular word, notify. And what does that mean? And having spent some time working alongside 911 dispatch centers, that's that's more complex than it really sounds. What does notification mean? How How is it that they're going to interface with our 911 centers? Because the flow of important information that first responders receive is through their 911 dispatch center. So how does that information and what information gets to that dispatch center? And then how is that ultimately relayed to responders? And how quickly can that information uh, be shared. Uh, it's plausible that responders would be on scene of a derailment within minutes, depending on where it occurred in the location of that fire apparatus. Is the expectation that this information gets there within minutes? Um, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what the the feasibility of that information is. Now, this may seem a little bit morbid, and it's and I say it mildly and tongue in cheek, but you know something as significant as a hazardous materials derailment from a train, I'm more interested in those that are outside 10 miles being notified about what it is that's coming in because those that are inside 10 miles may have already been affected Support, you know, poorly by whatever it is that's being leaked into our environment or atmosphere. Being part of the public policy process, I've seen where you know you're trying to land on what number is appropriate for notification. Is 10 miles right? Is 20 miles right? 
Uh, I think anyone who would be party to a response like this would receive that type of notification. I don't know how important the 10 miles is. It's just funny that it's really pulled out here. My questions on stuff like this is what does notification mean? How timely can that information be shared? But it seems perfectly intuitive to me. I can't see really a sense for opposition to making this the rule that if something bad goes goes down. Uh, in fairness, some listeners may be saying, you should just be notified what's on a trail, a train, no matter what that's passing through your area. Um, and maybe there's a fair argument for that. Maybe Jeff will address that in some of his thoughts on this. A lot of bad things, a lot of hazardous materials get transported, unfortunately, from one location to another, not just by rail car, uh, but by semi trucks and vehicles on interstate highways. I prefer to not really give a lot of thought to that. I mean, there's a lot of safety engineering and measures that go into these things. We had major highways when I was in Southern Nevada. We had made major uh, interstate commerce coming through, through Oregon as well. So most of our states have this experience. Things, nasty stuff is traveling on our, on our roadways. And it seems reasonable to me that first responders would be made aware of it. It's likely a practice already. It's just not regulated. And it does call attention to the Ask Rail app, uh, which is an existing it seems reasonable that this would be policy. I don't know, Jeff, do you have any any thoughts on this one? I, too, was not aware of, of this and thought for sure that these notifications were ongoing. And, and let this just be a smack into the face of hopefully all of the audience who may not know to what extent emergency responders, i.e. firefighters, are actually going to they're going to all of these hazardous material spills and collisions on railways, and they might not, they probably didn't know what actually was in the cargo. And so, I mean, that that really resonates with me first, what, what type of dangers our first responders have, and really the level of training that they have to have. They truly have to be jacks of all trades. And it's, it's just, it's so very, 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 very difficult. Bob, you really touched on the notification piece of it. What I felt from reading the article is the lack of response. And I'll talk about funding in, in conjunction with this in just a second. Um, excellent. They've made movement from the railways and they are pushing them towards notification. That's fantastic. But that leaves each jurisdiction holding the bag of response. And frankly, I think that that needs to be distributed. We're leaning on county, city, municipalities that these railways are running through to have all the right tools, all the right resources. Staffing is a struggle across the country in order to mitigate a huge incident like a railway spill and all these, these noxious chemicals. So that 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 was kind of point one where, you know, I, I really felt some tension there from from my perspective. And number two, to the men and women that are actually working as firefighters and to the men and women in leadership roles as they struggle to fund these fire departments, maybe there's an opportunity here. With that type of reliance of the railways going through every jurisdiction and every state, maybe there are federal resources that could be allocated towards emergency response because they own a piece of this. They are taking precious cargo through cities and counties across the United States, and maybe there's an avenue for, for funding. So the two things that really stuck out for me is where's the railway's responsibility and providing some level of response and really kind of coupled to that was I think there could be an opportunity for municipalities to to potentially lean on railways for, for funding. And those are those are some of the things that really resonate with me. 
I actually hopped on the Ask Rail app after reading this article to see what it looked like. And something that I ran into, and so I'm glad that, uh, Bob, you mentioned notifying folks what was passing through the area on trains is there's essentially a security clearance wall where which makes total sense really like perhaps it is not in the public's best interest for every person to be able to access what is on a train passing through their area because some folks don't have other folks best interests at heart but I mean, that sort of brought the question up of who does know this information or like if there is some kind of notifications, who is receiving it? For me, it's more of like I would want people that I trust that are looking out for me, such as first responders or, you know, folks who have um, some kind of role in the regulation of toxic materials in our environment, like maybe some kind of environmental agency and This, I guess, is more of a theoretical question, but what came to mind for me is who does have this information and are they actually using it? Is it driving policy or response in any way? And I mean, I certainly don't know the answer to that, but I think that it's an important question to consider. And Ana, you're spot on. The notification, like we talked about, who needs to know when they need to know it is, is a much more complex discussion than we want first responders to know about hazardous materials incidents, No, right? No brainer. We, we need our first responders to be aware. But hazardous materials, by nature of their name, provide a, a much broader impact to a community than just what the responders are going to be up against. So more often than not, we do need our environmental teams to be made aware. These are environmental disasters. When when hazardous materials are are released into the air and impact air quality or into the water systems and impact water quality, you know, how quick would you as a household, even if you're not anywhere near that, that train derailment or that hazardous materials release, how, how soon would you want to know that your water systems, your municipal water systems might be compromised as a result of whatever, right? Whatever the event is. And my experience is they're not the, the environmental teams, environmental quality folks are are not always immediately the first to know. Sometimes they're learning about these types of events when the news reports on them. Um, so we could do a lot better in the entire emergency response ecosystem to make sure that the appropriate resources are made aware of things like this. And the 911 center, generally speaking, is the best information hub where this info can come in and they can make sure the right players are notified of the right types of events. And there's some sophistication in the systems, the technology that can do that in near real time and finding the right threshold of when do do people want to be alerted uh, versus over alerting to to events that may seem threatening, but but ultimately aren't. I mean, I think on behalf of the community, we'd rather have people over notified than under notified. It seems simple and there's some complexity. There's some complexity to it. And I didn't think about the nefarious actors who would want to know that when we had our guest from the ATF on, I'm sure that would have been his immediate filter. Uh, would have been through the people with nefarious interests knowing what rail cars were carrying what and when. Um, so I guess it does make sense that how tightly uh, kept this information needs to be. I just wanted to make one point uh, in, in regards to this article that also, as, as we're talking through it, and it's the intersection between theory and application. You know, this notion of of making emergency responders aware of this dangerous cargo that's traveling through their municipality. And this intersection becomes really tricky. There's a whole bunch of information that's out there to let them be aware that this noxious chemical is traveling through their community and it could be dangerous. But when you talk about 600 railways, as the article portrays, and potentially hundreds of rail cars 
per railway and potentially maybe, uh, I don't know, two, three, four, up to a dozen. I don't know the transportation pathways and the frequencies. We could be talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of cars that are going through, if not for just a second, like what, what Bob was mentioning. So there becomes this, gosh, how do we realistically make people aware, i.e. first responders? How do we realistically create barriers or fortify, fortify our communities against some of these hazards that can take place, uh, that's a difficult intersection to come to. It sounds really great in theory, but what does application look like? I think notification is a step in the right direction. How successful will that be in relationship to effectiveness? I'm just not so sure because up until this point, fire departments have been reactionary to the railways that have been going through their neighborhoods. Am I saying that that's the, the best model? No, I'm just not sure that the notification piece is, uh, you know, how helpful it's going to be. It's going to be interesting to see. Because like I said, you you take Southern Nevada, where Bob and I both grew up in the fire service, and people don't realize that right next to the Las Vegas Strip, there's a very busy railway that's running cargo through there every single day. And we've been fortunate that there really hasn't been any tank spills that, at least any that really come to mind that I can I can recall. I don't know, Bob, if you can remember any of them. But the point is, is that's not a focus for the emergency responders. It's it's that intersection between theory and application, notification and response that I think is a really, really tricky recipe to balance. And and uh, this this much I know, there definitely, definitely needs to be more awareness because it is in a community near you and first responders, if they haven't, they're going to respond to a railway and they need to be prepared. It's an intersection of a lot of different aspects all at once. And I, I'm i glad in a way that we are having this conversation, that there are these focusing events, because how else were we going to bring attention to this issue? And it does kind of seem like one of those, we need to prepare for the worst kinds of situations, even if they don't happen very often, because thankfully this doesn't happen all the time. But um, whether it's a train, whether it's a pipeline, you know, this kinds of hazardous material stuff, is not going away. And so being prepared and also making sure that we have the right safeguards in place is very important. We have a listener question that I really want to get around to. We're recording this around the 4th of July. You might not hear it at that time, but I just want to make sure that neither of you have additional thoughts that we are going to skim over before we get to our listener question about fireworks. Just as you pointed out, Inanna, that you know these types of what the risk management world would call high consequence, low frequency events are exactly what we have emergency response systems in place for, uh, is to help protect our communities from these types of events. And so while I, I don't know uh, how big of a splash a policy like this is going to make, it seems intuitive to me. I think it's uh, uh, an important piece if it's missing today uh, that we check this box and make sure responders are notified um, as soon as reasonably possible of what it is that's going to impact that community so they can react to it. Absolutely. All right. Before we sign off, we want to address our question, which is regarding fireworks. Why do fire departments make such a big deal about, quote unquote, illegal fireworks? They aren't that dangerous, right? What do you two make of this question? I'm so glad this question got asked because I'm, yeah, immediately people are going to, okay, well, we got the the sparklers are not that dangerous. Well, first, first of all, hold on. That's where most of the burns come from. Those puppies burn super, super hot. 
Kids are getting burned every single year. Adults, alcohol, you name it. Lots of burns happen from those fireworks. But here's point number two. What's frustrating to me about fireworks, I want every person in this country to enjoy 4th of July and have fun. What the tension that's created, what it does to the fire response is it takes resources that would be otherwise available for a cardiac respiratory arrest, an asthma attack, or a true working fire in a house or somewhere else. And it takes those limited precious resources and puts them onto a tree fire or to a dumpster fire, which I'm not saying is unimportant, but it could have been avoided. And what our emergency response system is today is limited. And every 4th of July, I just talked to a crew from North Las Vegas yesterday. They ran 33 calls on the engine company, 33 calls. And it's just unacceptable. And it just pulls the resources out. Every, every year around June 20th, uh, we get phone calls from our local county commissioners about you know, trying to address the concerns from the community about fireworks bans because fireworks bans come up, well, every every June 20th, as a, matter, as a matter of fact, in our community and areas throughout Oregon, particularly where we wildland urban interface areas, high risk wildfire areas do have fireworks bans, but we don't in southern Oregon. And but every June 20th, when the fireworks booths go up, county commission would call, say, well, we know what the fire service's opinion is on this. And essentially, they wanted to skirt the policy direction to come from the firefighters because they didn't want to have to face the community for telling folks you can't light off light off fireworks. When you turn to the data and our experience in our particular region, that fireworks that were responsibly managed, legal fireworks, responsibly managed, we're not causing a fire problem in our particular area of the community. We had other issues that were that were truly the fire problem. If you looked at what the risk to the fire to the community was, really wasn't fireworks responsibly being lit. Uh, I wanted to get to I, I took an opportunity while Jeff was talking to do a very cursory literature review and look at studies that are related to any correlational work that examines the incidence of fires and firework bans. Uh, and I was looking at it through the lens of causing causing fires and actually surprised to, to find I, I didn't really come up with any studies that show that firework bans have an effect as a policy have an effect on the incidence of fires. But what is pretty prevalent is the incidence of injuries and that fireworks bans uh, have have correlated with a reduction, significant reductions in injuries. And some of these studies are pointed directly towards pediatric in injuries and some specifically to the eyes, very specific work. Other Others pointed to uh, particulate matter and the air quality during fireworks celebrations, not just 4th of July. Some of this was international and just whatever it is that was being celebrated where fireworks came in. So there were other effects of fireworks besides just the the causing of fires, at least that have been well studied. And I, my, my initial hunch is you know, our documentation in the fire service is so poor uh, that even if we wanted to try to look at the effect of those, we just don't don't do a great job documenting the, the occurrence of what's causing fires. So, uh, you know, Yes, you know, fireworks can cause a lot of harm when done responsibly and, and managed well with legal fireworks. It it 
it does not necessarily have a fire problem, at least where I live, but that's everyone's got a complete, a completely different, different experience. Uh, there are some it's, it's this interesting emergence of light drones. Have you seen, have you all seen these yet? I think the first time I ever saw one was during the Olympics there. These are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of choreographed drones that do a light show that sort of mimics what a firework display would do without some of these uh, ill effects of injuries and environmental conditions concerns or what have you. Of course, there's a lot of tension that, that you see uh, displaying in social media over, you know, as, as an unacceptable replacement for fireworks. I'm not, certainly not going to weigh in on that, but I think th I've never seen them in person, but the ones I've seen on TV are pretty cool. They can do really cool things. Uh, so we'll leave that. I'll leave that for a discussion for another day. Uh, but that's sort of my experience on the fireworks debate. Uh, in, in the end of that story, the county commission never addressed it in, in Jackson County or Oregon and Southern Oregon by July 5th, they're, they've moved past it. There was no bad experience and they're on to whatever the next issue is that they're going to deal with. And then it would just reemerge June 20th when the fireworks booth comes up the next year. My recommendation to them was to form, let's form a coalition and a committee and, and really study the issue in the, when, when it's not an emotionally charged uh, uh, problem. Um, they never took me up on that offer. So we'll see. I appreciate the two of you expanding um, upon what dangerous could potentially mean when it comes to fireworks as well, because, you know, we think fireworks of starting fires. But as you said, it could be burns. It could be the air quality. I especially don't like that about Fourth of July. Well, thank you for your question for sending that in. And for any of you who are listening, if you have thought of any questions uh, for this episode or any other episode or future fire topics that you have in mind, please, please reach out to us at fireheadlines at wfca.com and let us know what's on your mind. We'll see you back here next week for more Fire Headlines. Fire Headlines.